0: Good morning, everyone. Glad you can be here this morning. We can find our seats. We'll get ready to get started. If I can get this adjusted right. You know, I used to, and I want to preface this, I used to really hate snow. And I still, for the most part, do. But it's kind of nice to have the brown and black of the mud covered, right? Um, And our woods always look so pretty in the snow-covered trees, but uh, we are in Mark chapter 14 as we continue plugging along in our uh, book series of Mark. uh, We have, what, two chapters to go. Right, Two chapters to go, we're on the last week of Jesus' life, and those two chapters will take us all the way through April. So uh, if you would, once you have your copy of God's Word, open to Mark chapter 14, stand with me as we read. We're going to read verses 10 through 21. 10 through 21 of Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 10, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Uh, eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is the one, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we come before you and we ask that you would just speak to us, that you would teach us your word this morning, Father. Father, we know that your word is powerful. It is permanent. And we thank you that uh, you are the sovereign author And that you speak to us this morning, today, just as much as you spoke in those last days with your disciples. So, Father, we come before you and we ask that you administer to us, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. So we want to put a little bit of context here before we dive in. Um, Jesus has been, as we listened last week, as Travis taught... Uh, Jesus has been anointed uh, with this woman that came in and broke this expensive jar of, of pure nard uh, and, and poured it over his head and anointed him, um, and and you read the story in, in verses 3 through uh, uh, 9. Uh, I think it's important that you put it in context as well. If, if uh, you go through the Gospels, I always encourage you to uh, connect the stories of the other gospel writers and the accounts, because there's a lot of valuable information that you can piece together. And so if we actually go to John chapter 12, you get the same story, and it gives us a few more details. We learn that this lady uh, is actually Mary, the sister of Lazarus, uh, uh, who is the one that does the anointing, and we actually also learn that the one who complains about the uh, cost and how much of a waste it was is Judas. Uh, and and this is significant because as Jesus rebukes the the comments about the waste of money, it is I believe probably a boiling point for Judas. Judas has been with Jesus and, and these disciples for some time. And, and he gets to a point where I think it's finally boiled over for him, where he's like, I've had enough. I, I, uh, Judas will look at today. Um, there's just stuff going on in the heart. And it just finally snaps. And that really leads us into our, our text for today, and Judas starts, we're going to start in verse 10. Um, but you know, you think about Judas, and we want to talk this morning, and, and if I was to have a title for you this morning, it would be Lessons from Judas. Uh, Judas the character is not a very popular name today. When you do baby dedications, you don't have very many Judases that you're dedicating Judas is a name that everybody, regardless of whether you're a believer or not, everybody seems to know Judas. In fact, Judas, this might surprise you, is mentioned more than any of the other disciples except for Peter in the four Gospels. And not only that, but he's the only one of the disciples that was of the same tribe as Jesus. Judas was a Judean, not a Galilean. All the others were Galileans. Judas was a Judean. And his name literally means praise. Which is fascinating to me because in in Jewish culture, a name has so much meaning. You know, when when a child is named, it usually has to do with maybe a circumstance surrounding their birth or or a goal or an ambition of the parent. Uh, There's always a meaning. Names weren't just chosen because it sounded cool. It had a purpose. So that tells us something, that Judas probably had godly parents. You know, we, we hear Judas, and right away we put him in this category of evil... Possessed by Satan, betrayer, and all these things. And, and while those things are true, there's also a background that I think would behoove us to to, to consider and to look at. He probably had godly parents. Uh, Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means uh, uh, one who is from uh, a, a town uh, called Karoth, or however you pronounce it, and 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 it's a town kind of. In that Judean area, near, closer to Jerusalem, so he probably grew up in the shadow of the temple. He understood he had he he he. What I want you to understand is he grew up with godly advantages. Think about that. He grew up with all the godly advantages, godly parents most likely, uh, with an understanding of the temple and and Judaism. And and yet in all of this, he was still a a despicable person. And, And if we just paused here and ended our sermon with this thought, I want you to consider that don't think that if you grow up with the right advantages, you will be successful, or if you grow up without them, you will not be successful. Our lot in life ultimately is determined by our choices, not our circumstances. They can influence it, but our lot in life is our choices. So we're going to start in verse 10. It says that then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Judas had had enough, and I want you to understand, I found it fascinating. It said he went... In order to betray him, his intent was to betray him. That's the only reason why he went. It was premeditated. Judas had had enough. He was premeditating the death of Jesus. His mindset, you know, this is a time, uh, as we read in this passage, it's the Passover. So what's going on in the mind of, of Judas? Probably very similar to what's going on in the mind of all the Jews that are around that region. They are remembering the Passover, a time where God delivered his people from bondage from the nation of Egypt. And so Judas probably gathers around Jesus thinking this is the Messiah who is going to free us from the bondage of the Roman Empire and he's had enough because he's seeing a Messiah that is not fulfilling his desires. Not only that, we also see Judas, who's the one who says, "What waste!" and and we get more uh, indications of the heart of Jesus from or Judas, I'm sorry, from John chapter 12, uh, which tells us that he said this idea that the money could have been uh, the jar could have been sold and given to the poor. It says that he really didn't care about the poor. He was the keeper of the money bag and he helped himself to it, so he was a thief. That's the heart of Judas. And so essentially what happens is he's boiled over with all that's going on, his his unfulfilled expectations, his desires, they were sinful, they were selfish, they were filled with money, desires for greed. In fact, we're told over and over again that he was a, a thief. And, and so all these things, so he has decided to cut his losses and try and profit off of this relationship with Jesus. And so he goes, and I find it interesting that the the... the, the, the conversation here the, the, the dialogue of what's going on it says that he went to betray them to betray him and then it says and when they heard it they were glad and promised him money and the results were that he sought an opportunity to betray him Matthew tells us it was for 30 pieces of silver Put that in context, 30 pieces of silver. I mean, we don't know how big the pieces were, but you know, it's probably maybe 30 days' wages, maybe at tops, three months. That's what Jesus is being betrayed for. And it says here that he sought an opportunity, and the original language implies in the tense continually. He's continually looking. He's looking, an opportunity means that he is finding a convenient time, a time when there's no, that it would be easy to do. Another application, this, this sermon could be filled with application after application, but brothers and sisters, if you are looking for an opportunity to sin, I promise you, you'll find it. Sin lies at the door, we're told in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Sin is lying at the door waiting for you. In, in Romans, Paul says, uh, I find so I find this law at work in my members that when I, when I want to obey, sin is lying right there. It is always an opportune time. Okay? I've got a lot of back-end application on this, this morning, so I want to get through the rest of this text. It says in verse 12 that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upper room, furnished and ready. They are prepared for us. So Jesus' is, his disciples come to him. You know, they recognize that it's, it's the Passover. They're like, hey, Jesus, we're in Jerusalem. We don't have a place. Remember, this is none of their hometown. Where are we going to have this Passover? This is an important feast. It's an important, one of the most important remembrances for a Jew. And, and, and as they look at all this and they're like, well, where are we going to do it? And I find this such an incredible scene. Okay? It's a special place. And it has to be set up with a divine setting, doesn't it? Jesus says, hey, here's how you're going to get it. You're going to go into the city, and, and before we think that this is just commonplace, he says, you'll find a man carrying a water jar. That is not commonplace. Men did not carry water jars, they never did. It's very different culture than what we're used to. If, if you were a man, you didn't labor like that. In fact, you might have, and, and why it's even less common is if you were a man and you were fetching water, you carried a skin, not a water jar. And so Jesus saying, hey, you'll find a man carrying a water jar. Can you imagine this, this servant whose master says, hey, go take the water jar and go fill it? The, the master probably would have been like, yeah, but can I carry the skin? It's a little lighter. It's, it's more manly versus the water jar. But he's obedient, and because of his obedience, there's divine direction. He comes, and we don't know if Jesus knew the the master of the house, what relationship they might have had. Maybe they had a previous one. We don't know. But what we do know is that Judas didn't know, and that's important because Jesus has to have a very special moment with his disciples. In fact, we're told, I think it's in Luke, that Jesus says, I have longed earnestly for this time with you. And he didn't want any interruptions. Judas has been looking for opportunity. And so Jesus sends only two of his disciples in. And, and Jesus doesn't want to interrupt it, interrupted. And, and, and they find, where well, they find there an upper room. Brothers and sisters, this is an incredible place. The upper room. It's a place that has seen, will see a lot of incredible stuff. This is where the Lord washed his disciples' feet. This is where the Lord tells them of his imminent departure for them. This is where Jesus teaches them about a vine-branch special relationship. This is where Jesus teaches them for the first time about the Holy Spirit that would come. And this this is the place where Jesus prays for them in this intimate and eloquent, tender prayer. This is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, where he breaks bread and explains to them, this is my body that will be broken for you. This is the cup which represents my blood that will be poured out for you. This is a very special place, and not just at this couple of days, this days that they're there, but, but we are told later on that that is probably the place where Jesus made some of his most intimate and first appearances after the resurrection, they, they didn't have anywhere else to go, so after Jesus was crucified, they probably went back to this upper room and they waited there. And Jesus, it says, walks through the walls, essentially, and appears to them. This is probably where Thomas is revealed, as Jesus revealed himself to him, and says, put your fingers in my hands and in my side. We're told that they were in an upper room 40 days after Jesus' ascension praying. And it didn't say an upper room, it says the upper room. Probably the same place where Pentecost happens, where the church is born. This is a special place. And we're told that they made ready. And what we're going to look at for the next few weeks is this incredible scene. One of the most intimate places, one of the most intimate teaching moments for Jesus with his disciples in those last days. And it says, when evening came, after those two disciples had made ready the Passover, Jesus comes with the rest of the twelve, and as they're reclining at table and eating... We had a discussion in community group. Why does it say at table instead of at the table? I don't know the answer. And Jesus starts with this Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That must have dropped like a bomb. This is an intimate time. We're going to sit at this table. We're going to have our fellowship together. They're thinking, you know, just remember a couple of days ago they came into Jerusalem with people shouting Hosanna and putting down palm branches. And and they're thinking, man, this is the Messiah. We're we're finally coming. They say to Jesus, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom? This is all going to happen? And, And the first words in that intimate moment when they finally sit down together for the first time, they're alone with Jesus. He says, truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. Imagine how that would have fallen. Brothers and sisters, understand betrayal. Your enemy cannot betray you. It has to be someone close. And by the way, it hurts deeply. And it is very troublesome. In fact, we're told in John, I would encourage you, by the way, When you get a chance to read John chapter 13, this whole account, because there's a lot of details in there. We're going to reference a few of them. But in John chapter 13, verse 21, it says, Jesus was deeply troubled in his soul, and he declared, one of you will betray me. There's anguish. Then it tells us here in Mark that they were all began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? Is it I? They didn't trust themselves. And what I find amazing is no one suspects Judas. You know, we we hear Judas, we think scoundrel, we think uh, evil person, and, and we have all these ideas, and they look at Judas, and they, they there's no indication whatsoever in any of the accounts that they, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they all looked at Judas. We don't read that anywhere. Because they didn't suspect Judas. In fact, I find it almost amusing that in John, in John chapter 13, uh, uh, Peter says to John, the disciple, who's leaning up to Jesus. Peter says, Hey, Jesus, John, why don't you ask Jesus who it is that's gonna betray? Ask him. And what I find amazing is Jesus tells him. He says, It's the one whom I dip this to and give it to. And it says that he gives it to Judas. And then he tells Judas, what you are going to do, go do. And somehow the other 11 witness all this and don't suspect Judas because it tells us in John chapter 13 that they all assumed that he was going to continue to make preparations because he had the money bag to buy provisions for the Passover. Somehow it went over their head. Jesus quotes in, in all the gospel accounts, he says, it is, the, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. That is a quote directly from the Old Testament. In chapter, in Psalm chapter 41, we read of David's own experience. David was betrayed by a man named Ahithophel. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a great fun name to say. Uh, but Ahithophel, if you don't know who he is, he, he, uh, when David, is um, uh, his son, uh, has a coup, Absalom takes over and, and David and his men flee. Ahithophel is the counselor who stays to, to give counsel to Absalom. He's a very wise man. He was David's friend. He betrays David. You know why he probably betrayed David? Because he was bitter at David. Because Ahithophel's granddaughter was Bathsheba. And in Psalm chapter 41, David writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Again, in Psalm 55, David talks about this very concept of the deep hurt of betrayal. He says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals with me, then I could hide from it. But as you, a man, my equal my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. And I find it interesting as D- as Jesus is referencing back to this and they would have understood. Uh, uh, we, we find that Ahithophel, when he realizes he has failed, what does he do? He goes out and hangs himself and commits suicide. Very similar. The text concludes, it says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The Son of Man goes, and the the idea, the concept is that he does so willingly. He's not not, uh, doing it under compulsion, Jesus is going willingly to be betrayed. But Jesus ends with, with this statement, it would be better for him to not have been born. That's a powerful statement. We read things like Satan entering into Judas, and and that's what caused him to do it. No, no, no. There's an aspect there. The the early church fathers always used to say the divine necessity for Jesus to be betrayed betrayed is no excuse for the uh, uh, will of freedom of choice that Judas made. In fact, in this very passage, the blame is put right back on Judas. It says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. By whom, meaning responsibility placed upon Judas. And here is the statement that is just so powerful and incredible. What Jesus says is non-existence is preferable to what Judas is going to face. And brothers and sisters, the same can be said Of every non-believer. Anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And has no relationship with Him. Non-existence would be preferable to what you will face one day. I find it interesting. John closes out this very section of scripture in his account. And he says... After Jesus had said this, it says, and it was night. Very sobering. You know, we've, we've gone through the last six months walking through Mark, and you, you don't get to avoid certain passages when you do expository. You know, I got to preach on hell a while ago. I got to preach on, on marriage and divorce and remarriage. Uh, all light subjects, right? And then you come to Judas. Nice, light you know, it seems like it should be cloudy, dark, and raining today when we preach on this. But I was encouraged as I walked through this, because I think there are four lessons from Judas that we should take from this account. Four lessons that I want to walk through now with you. Number one, the first lesson is the unconditional love of Jesus is displayed. Consider what's going on. Here is the reality, brothers and sisters. Jesus loved Judas. That's a hard pill to swallow. But he loved him. In fact, we know from Scripture that Jesus chose Judas. In Luke chapter 6, it says that after a night of prayer with the Father, he went and chose 12 disciples. And in those 12, it's listed out. The last one says, and Judas Iscariot. Jesus literally chose Judas. Really quickly, flip with me to John chapter 13. I want you to see the preface to all this in John's account. John prefaces this whole display by showing the very heart of Jesus in the very moment of this whole account. In John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, here is the very heart behind Jesus' conversations now with his disciples. Listen to what it says. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Judas is in that. He loved them to the end. Jesus loved Judas to the end. He washed Judas' feet the night of his betrayal. And this wasn't just like a quick thing. This, this whole night, it was, it was a drawn-out thing. And in the midst of that, Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to relent and to repent. And you notice that Jesus doesn't humiliate Judas. He doesn't call him out and, and point at him and say, you're the one who's going to be, betray me. No, he he acted in love. He, he gave him every opportunity in that upper room. He didn't call him out. He didn't humiliate him. He left open the door for return. He even acknowledged to Judas, I know what you're going to do. He gave him every opportunity. He is long-suffering. He loved him. And and while he's being betrayed, because Judas had betrayed him in his heart, uh, Jesus is more concerned about Judas than his own being. Consider that. Jesus was troubled in his soul that night when he said that, I'm going to be betrayed. Why was he troubled? Because he loved Judas. My question is, How are you doing with loving those who are difficult for you to love? Those who hurt you. Those who are jerks. Those who are selfish. I find it interesting the writer of Hebrews tells us after going through this account of of this incredible new covenant we have been given, he, he gives some final instructions in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, strive for peace with everyone and go for godliness without which no one will see the Lord. And he says in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that you would receive it so that you can live it. Why? Because of this, that no root of Bitterness spring up in you. Why is that so important? Because it causes trouble and by it many are defiled. Brothers and sisters, bitterness in your heart because you are hurt and wounded will cause defilement. It breaks peace. It destroys relationships. Jesus, the perfect example of love unconditional love, whom we are called to love. Jesus, the one who says in this very section of Scripture, in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, that you would love one another even as I have loved you. How did Jesus love? He loved his betrayer on the night that he was being betrayed. And by this love, the world will know that you are my disciples. It is the very qualifying and and visual evidence that you are a follower of Christ. This kind of love that is laid out for us, that love that can never be separated from, it kind of leaves off the list anyone from the list that says, I don't need to love them. I don't need to love them. That list should be empty. If we look and consider our master, which, by the way, Jesus also in that very upper room, after he washes his disciples' feet, he says, do you know what I'm doing for you? I'm leaving you an example that you should follow after me because no servant is greater than his master. So if you are sitting here today and you say there is just somebody I can't love, you are saying to yourself you are greater than Jesus. If there is somebody that you cannot forgive, if there is somebody that you have bitterness towards and you just cannot work through it, I'm not saying it's easy. Betrayal hurts deeply and wounds to the very core. But we are called To the example of Christ. Not just that we are called to love. But brothers and sisters receive a love that is unconditional. And know that no matter what you have done. He loves you. That's lesson number one from Judas. Lesson number two. Life's advantages are not sufficient. Judas had some serious advantages. Most likely a godly upbringing. Ministry experience. Check. Think about it. In fact, we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 17, that he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Consider Judas and what he experienced. He was given special power from Jesus to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, to help heal sick. Judas was in that group when they went out into the Galilean circle. Not only that, but he saw everything Jesus did. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus calm the storm. He saw all these things. Judas had very, very good experience. He heard with his own ears all the words in red that we read. He was there. He heard them. He had been in an exclusive group, discipled, under our very Lord and Savior for three years. I don't know that you can get much better advantages in life than that. Yet none of it mattered in the end. None of it mattered in the end. Brothers and sisters, consider this. For those who are here today, who are just hanging out with Jesus' disciples, because that's what we're supposed to be, hearing the teachings of Jesus, but you ain't one. You ain't a follower of Jesus. In the end, it would be preferable that you had never been born. Let that sink in. It is possible for you to come to church, to hang out with Jesus' disciples all the time, to to hear the very words of Jesus, to see that Jesus is working even today. It is possible to go through all that, to have a godly parents, to have godly family, to, to hear the word of God and to read it every single day and to be a part of that and to not accept Jesus as your Savior. It is possible. That's lesson number two. Lesson number three is as long as you have breath, it isn't too late. It isn't too late to forgive. If you have been betrayed, it hurts. It cuts you deep to the core because it's somebody you love, somebody that you respected. It hurts. Well, here's the answer go to Jesus. He knows. He knows. You say, I'm struggling with so-and-so to love them because I am bitter because of what they did to me. Guess what? Jesus knows. Paul says that I have longed to know Christ and to share in his sufferings. He longs to share with you. But not just to forgive. As long as you have breath, it's not too late to repent and be forgiven. If Judas, listen to this, if Judas had not committed suicide, but rather gone to the foot of the cross, he would have been forgiven. He would have been forgiven. No doubt about it. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that we have a Savior who is faithful and just, that if we confess our sins, He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How is what Judas did any different than what Peter did? Peter, on the third time he denied Christ, he declared it with an oath, an anathema. He said, if I know this guy, then I am eternally cursed. I don't know him. And suddenly a rooster crows, which is ironic because roosters were not allowed in in Jerusalem, in the city. And so this must have been like Rambo rooster that snuck in. The difference Peter didn't hang himself he came to the foot of the cross he came to Jesus and he said forgive me but if he had repented if Judas had repented I want you to consider this his name would be written on one of the twelve foundation stones of New Jerusalem If he had repented, he would have witnessed the crucifixion. If he had repented, he would have witnessed the resurrection. If he had repented, he would have witnessed the ascension. He would have witnessed the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church. He could have died a martyr's death instead of a suicide if he had repented. But he didn't. And Peter tells us in Acts chapter 1 that we need to replace Judas who was a part of this ministry because he went out to his own place. Brothers and sisters, if you are sitting here today, I can't tell you how many times I've run across people who have said, God could never forgive me because of blank. Yes, He could. And He will. And He wants to. He would have forgiven Judas. Lesson number four, the last one I want you to understand. I want you to understand this very deeply. Life without Christ is waste. In John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying to the Father, he says in verse 12, While I was with them, meaning his disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not lost one of them except the son of per- of destruction, or in some translations it says of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. you know what that word destruction, perdition means? It means waste or ruin. Judas was a son of waste or ruin. Consider, Judas is the one who was saying, why this waste? And the reality is his life was waste. It might sound harsh for me to say it, but all that he experienced, all that he had been a part of, everything that he saw, everything that he heard, all that went on, he saw and was a part of, and it was nothing to him, and it would have been better that he had not been born. We are told. If you are here today, living a life without Christ as the center, without Christ as your only hope of salvation, without Christ, without a relationship with Jesus Christ, I am telling you right now that your life is a waste. That's harsh, but it's a fact. Without Christ, it is meaningless. But it doesn't need to be. We don't end on a sour note that your life is a waste. We end with this. It doesn't need to be. You know why this was written? Not so that we could know just how to live. It was written so that we can be born again. It was written because Jesus Christ, as as God in the flesh, came and He saw all that mankind had done, all of our sins, all of our unrighteousness, and knowing there was absolutely no way that we could ever get from here to God ever again, since, since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that there was no possibility that we could ever restore that relationship. There was not a chance We're told in Isaiah that everything that we do, that we think is good, is but filthy rags. It's garbage, refuge before God. Because it never, ever will equate to what it needs to be. And we're told over and over again in Scripture that that all of our continual thinking and, and all of our continual actions, apart from God, is godless. It is never good. And that's what Jesus saw. And as he came, he said, I, I will make things new. And so a life that is being wasted can be restored to a beautiful thing. Because Jesus came and he lived and he died. He was betrayed. He was broken hearted. He died upon a cross. And his body broken means forgiveness. His blood poured out means the cleansing of sin. And perfect payment is made. And Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. And perfect justice is made. And we're told in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. No longer a waste. Paul says that the life I live, I don't live to myself but I live through Jesus Christ who has been resurrected. It is not my life, and therefore it is not a waste. So what I want us to do when we talk about Judas is I want us to remember the unconditional love that Jesus has for me and that I need to pour that out on others. If there is brokenness in your life, you need to deal with it. You need to see to it that no root of bitterness is there creeping and defiling yourself and others. You need to to recognize that as Jesus loved Judas, he loves me. He loves that person that I am broken in relationship with. We need to also remember that life with all of our supposed advantages are not necessarily what it takes. They are not what it takes at all. In fact, we need Jesus. And as long as you have breath, it's not too late. Don't live life without Christ. It is waste. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. We thank you for the, the details of the story, the heartache, the troubles, the sorrows. And Father, we can read through these things and gloss over the language And miss the important details of the the, the troubles that were going on, the inner turmoil, the heartache. And Father, I thank you that we can see in it hope. Father, I pray if there is anyone here today that has not put their hope, their faith, their trust in Jesus alone. Not some man made theology, not some man made uh, conspiracy or idea, whatever it is, Lord. But I pray we'd come to the foot of the cross. I pray this morning that people would come to you, that we would all come to you and we would recognize your unconditional love for us that you have declared over and over and over again in your word. And Father, I pray that we would not sit here content with hearing truth, but believing it and living it. Father, I pray that there would be no life in here wasted, but for your kingdom And for your glory, we would live, we pray in Jesus' precious name.